Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, Parlor, and Instagram. And of course, be sure to visit www.mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. In Search of Darkness, Part 2. I'm in this one. The 80s was the splatter decade. That was my decade. There was something really dark and sexy and strange. Crazy stuff. It's like a roller coaster ride. People love this stuff. There really was a shift of a whole new generation of monster makers. That was so clever and creative. We were rock stars in the 80s. Five, four, three, Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 326. The journey into 80s horror continues with In Search of Darkness Part 2, the follow-up to the highly successful 2019 documentary In Search of Darkness that dives deeper into the movies, the players, the controversy, and the blood-splattered glory of 1980s horror. Featuring new interviewees such as Robert England, Nancy Allen, and wrestling icon Chris Jericho, as well as returning guests John Carpenter, Barbara Cranston, and Doug Bradley, In Search of Darkness Part 2 is a must-have for fans and newcomers of the horror genre. And I'm happy to say joining me now on the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is the director of In Search of Darkness Part 2, David Weiner. David, I thank you very much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me again. So... Before we get into the questions in regards to the movie, I want to let everyone know right now, if you go to 80shorrordoc.com, you can actually purchase In Search of Darkness Part 2 um, in a limited capacity on Blu-ray. It's like only five more days. Um, so Feb 14 is like the last day you can do this. Um, so just let everyone know, 80shorrordoc.com, and you can buy In Search of Darkness Part 2 right now on Blu-ray, region free. And, and David, look, there's so many cool things that come with this. There's posters, there's pins, there's the soundtrack score. And also what's really cool as well, there's an eight-month season pass to the In Search of Darkness community. What, what exactly is that part to the whole uh, package? Yeah, so in addition to uh, the, the documentary that you get, also I want to mention you get uh, digital downloads of In Search of Darkness part one and two with this package, which is a pretty good deal. Yep. And if you and if you never got a chance to get In Search of Darkness part one, you can upgrade with a, an additional disc for not very much money, which is a really good deal. Um, but we thought we would go beyond the documentary. You know, it takes a long time to put these together. So we had this online Discord community where we have uh, a collective of like-minded fans who are as passionate as you are about the genre, who get to talk about it and interact and show their collectibles. And we have weekly events uh, or every other week, whether it's a, uh, a Q&A or a watch party or something uh, with the talent from a lot of these genre films that we know and love. It's, uh, it's real fun and it's a real... Um, in these times where many of us are stuck inside, uh, despite ourselves, it's a nice uh, outlet, uh, additionally, to uh, the media that we like to consume. And I don't know about you, David, but I love getting the physical copy of movies. I think it's really important people do have that because while streaming is awesome, having that physical copy in your hand with the artwork and everything else 
is um, a really, I think, the way to go, um, especially with something like this with all the extras that come with it. So people, 80shorrordoc.com. We got till midnight, midnight of February 14 uh, to get all of this stuff, you know, a really great price. Um, yeah, it look, looks good on your shelf. <laughs> yes, it, it really does. And I'm going to order one for myself. Absolutely. Um, I, so- I, 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 before you even dive in, I'll just sort of throw a little bit aside. I like to display whenever I'm watching something, I have a little, as if I'm at a video store, I have yes. this little display stand and I'll put my, you know, the DVD or the Blu-ray or even the VHS, whatever it may be kind of on display. And it makes me feel like I'm kind of doing the video store experience. Well, and I loved, and I want to talk about the video store experience a little later. Um, let's talk about In Search of Darkness Part 2. So the first movie was just such such a deep dive examination into the 80s horror, um, dec- a decade of 80s horror. And it was just a, such a thorough way to go about it. Um, went for over four hours, as this movie does. But clearly, there was so much more to get into, as we can see with this movie here. Um, and I think that says something about that decade, um, the movies from that decade, and there's still kind of insatiable demand for those movies from a lot of people today. Um, how soon did you realise after the first one wrapped up and you had it on sale and you had such great feedback towards that movie that you had to go back into the bunker and realise there is unfinished business, <laughs> unfinished business with this decade and you had to um, get back on the horse and try, um, talk, talk more about 80s horror? Well, it's an unmarked bunker, so it's hard to find. But uh, it, it's a vault full of unused material. We, uh, everyone I sat down with, which is upwards of fifty uh, people, um, I sat down with everyone uh, over an hour, sometimes two hours, sometimes even more. And uh, so, if you kind of do the math, then you you know you have upwards of fifty people, and you you slice up their their great you know bites and discussions for four and a half hours, you have a wealth of material. I mean, you have like 50, 75, 100 hours of material that you haven't even touched on yet. And so it's not like the the bits that fell on the floor. There was so much more to talk about, so many more movies to cover, so many topics to explore. Um, I realized right away, even when I put the first one together, that I, even though it's a four and a half hour movie, it's only scratching the surface. There are yeah. hundreds of movies that came out during that time. And so even then I was like, I, I never expected that we were going to do a part two, uh, but uh, executive producer Robin Block, this is, this is his project. This is his baby. And when he said to me, we got to do another one. People are really loving this and we have all this material and we need to go out and get even more. Let's do an In Search of Darkness Part 2. Uh, I I just jumped at the chance because part of the, the, the frustration with In Search of Darkness Part 1 was because there was so much material to cover, uh, I made a very difficult decision not to do more international titles mm. uh, and more of the sort of straight-to-video fare. But now here was my chance to include that and, and to continue on with a lot of the franchise, whether they were sequels or just sort of lesser known uh, things or even even more well known. I mean, I kind of made a choice to bypass uh, like Beetlejuice and Little Shop of Horrors because I kind of thought, well, everyone's seen that, you know, yeah. I, I, at least in my book, you know, I've seen those movies more times than I can count. But then I kind of realized that people were like, well, where are those movies? Why aren't they part of the story? And they are very much so. And I think they demonstrate the uh, the range that was available in terms of the creativity of that era. So long story short, uh, we had so much more additional material 
Hospital. The response was so overwhelmingly positive from the horror community. And the complaints that their movie wasn't in part mm. one just gave me an opportunity to do another four and a half hours and, and try and rectify that. And uh, I also know that I failed because there's hundreds of movies. <laughs> so there's there's room for more. The film you know, really gets into some deep cuts, some movies that perhaps even like horror fans like myself might not have even heard of. Um, Did you come across movies yourself in research for part two that you've never heard or seen of before? Absolutely. And there's a real charm to that because I would sometimes come across a a box that I recognize, but I'm like, oh yeah, that's that movie? I didn't make the connection, you know? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't claim to have seen it all. Um, but I've seen plenty. Uh, and I've also chosen not to watch a bunch of things as I've been growing up. I just either didn't want the time or the inclination. But this was a nice excuse to focus on on certain titles and say, you know what, now's the time to really sort of investigate and, and, and include this in the discussion. And uh, that made me real happy to be able to do that with a bunch of films. And also films that were not as, as well-known uh, but were very well known to me that didn't quite make the cut of part one. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of humanoids from humanoids from the deep. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I wanted to put that in part one and I, and I did a piece on it, but I just, it, it didn't make the cut. And uh, I wanted to make sure it was on this one. And to me, that, that movie is real fun because I saw that when I was young and probably shouldn't have seen it and <laughs> it made quite an impression on me. Uh, and part of this movie for fans, by fans, is to sort of share the love for these movies that may not be politically correct right now, but they have their place in history. Hmm. I think uh, like a very... A line that was repeated quite a bit by a lot of the interviewees in in the documentary was, oh, well, you're not going to see that anymore like these days. Um, (laughs) You can't do that anymore. No, you can't do that anymore. You can't kill the kids. No, you cannot. Um, What I really dug about the movie um, part two is that, you know, it's similar in style and structure to the first, but there's little differences that really make up like quite quite a big impression. And I love the kind of the profiles that you've done on some of the some um, actors and and people in the '80s horror kind of like uh, genre. And two that really mm-hmm. stood out for me was um, Nancy Allen and mm-hmm. uh, Linnea Quigley. And what's yeah. interesting about them two is that they were both very prolific in the '80s, um, and but they were kind of like in different opposite kind of like spectrums of the '80s horror kind of um, experience. You know, Nancy Allen was in a lot of the Brian De Palma films um, where Linnea was more kind of like in the straight-to-video um, kind of stuff there. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was like it was a nice kind of comparison to see both of their careers and how they kind of approached it and how they, you know, especially in regards to, you know, a lot of the excesses of 80s uh, movie experience, especially for the genre with um, nudity, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. When it comes to Nancy, she hasn't uh, acted in quite a while. I haven't seen her do an interview in quite a while as well. Um was it easy to get her on screen to talk about um, her experiences with these movies? Because, like I said, I haven't seen her in a while. I don't know if, if she has been doing much press. I know she hasn't done uh, a movie in, in quite a while. Was it kind of easy to get her into the film? And doing the first movie and seeing the great positive reactions to that, is that a, a really good kind of way in to try to get someone like Nancy Allen on camera again to talk about her experiences? Yeah, yeah. I, I 
I wouldn't say it was easy, but it wasn't incredibly difficult. Hmm. Um, I think I think it's all about timing when you're when you're getting talent. It's all about sort of your your placement and how you approach their representation, or if you could find a nice backdoor way where you know a friend of a friend or someone who manages them or is just you know their former roommate. Uh, I always find I always like taking the backdoor to you know get talent because it's a little easier. They're a little more likely to do it. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I mean, she was, she was very game to show up and, and sit down and, and talk, uh, at length. And it was quite refreshing. She was a wonderful, uh, engaging and, and, and candid this chat. And, uh, I was happy. I, I felt it absolutely necessary to do, you know, a segment, Nancy Allen on Nancy Allen, because she had so much to offer. Um, and then, you know, hand in hand with that, with Linnea Quigley, I had never really known, I, I knew her as an actress, but I didn't quite know what she was like as a personality. And I found her to be also quite a fresh, a breath of fresh air, easy for me to say. Hmm. Um, you know, just very comfortable talking about sometimes uncomfortable things with a, with a good sense of humor and, um I think both of these these actors look back at their careers and 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 their opportunities and their what the path that they ultimately went along and um, you know they're very they're very frank in terms of how they fit in the puzzle overall uh, but they're both very proud of what they've achieved and uh, I think showing the the, the sort of the, the different dynamic of uh, you know, the box office versus the straight to video type of uh, actor, you know, they still both have to scream. They built, <laughs> they still both get killed at one point or another, um, but they do it from different approaches. And I, I like being able to, having the privilege to have that in the film. Linnea brings with her an unexpected treasure in a workout tape that she released at the time. It's <laughs> right. kind of like Jane Fonda workout tape before like slasher fans in a sort of, in a sort of, sort of way. Um, did you know of that beforehand or is that stuff? And she's like, you know, I actually released a workout tape back in the eighties and I had to do with what he's going to slash stuff. I over the years had, had heard about it and seen it uh, prior to, you know, working on this and meeting her. Um, so I was the one to make sure to include it because I just thought, what a crime. If you're sitting with Linnea Quigley, hmm. you got to talk about the Linnea Quigley horror workout. Uh, although I learned a nugget of information. I didn't know that Mick Garris's wife uh, was the choreographer and one of the, one of the slumber party girls in that video. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so boy, I, that was a, a treat to learn that. Plus it's a fun story. You know, she went to go film that and they got kicked out of their location and she ended up having to like do it at her parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> Those are um, fun stories. Cause I think people expect big production tales and a lot of times it's catch as catch can because you have a limited amount of time, budget, yep. people, and you just got to get it. Otherwise, you don't. There's another um, element to the whole documentary is that it talks about the marketing of films back in the 1980s. Um, and it's really interesting is that today there are so many tools at the disposal of independent filmmakers to get their films out there in social media and there's still traditional media means as well. With horror movies, a lot of the time I had to do um, we have two fronts, um, the key art, movie poster especially, um, mm -hmm. and also the trailer. And there's so many movies that I watched 
was a you know older kid, teenager, etc. <clears throat> because of those two elements. And my criteria, I don't know about you, David, but my criteria a lot of times for renting horror films is if the cover was cool <laughs> and the back summary and a little, they have like little pictures of like, you know, might be like, you know, a, a picture of a monster, maybe my suggestion of nudity, perhaps, so which w- would inflame my teenage mind uh, to want to want to watch <laughs> right. it. Those were the two criteria that I will read a lot of films. And, and and while my my eyes at the time might have been, you know, looking for something else, I might I, I actually find a lot of treasures amongst it all um, in a lot of films that I really enjoyed watching. Um, with yourself, when you used to watch movies back in the eighties. How important was key art in a trailer and also like video VHS covers in your local rental store in really convincing you to say, you know what, I'm going to put down five bucks and I'm going to rent out that movie tonight? Well, it was all about that that package that they do to sell these things. And, uh, you know, the poster or the box art, you know, one and the same usually, but sometimes different, um, really was incredibly important. Uh, But the title, too. Sometimes mm-hmm. a title that was meant to to entice or titillate was uh, was an off-putting to me and something that I, I would have enjoyed I chose not to do. Like, for example, Chopping Mall is mm-hmm. one where uh, I, I love all different types of horror, but I would look at that and, you know, with a, with a ghostly hand holding a handbag of body parts or something to that effect. Uh, I was just like, this does not look like anything that's appealing to me. And it wasn't until years later that I learned that uh, this mall was a, like a, a L.A. mall where they had, you know, Johnny Five style Terminator, you know, laser robots in there <laughs> killing everybody. I, I had no idea because um, you wouldn't get that from the title. But um, the the trailer was very important. That would very much entice me. Oftentimes growing up, the trailer on TV was for something for rated R that I couldn't see. Mm. But if I was at a video store, oftentimes if I didn't even know about it, but they would show a trailer, that was a piece of the puzzle where I'd be like, wait, I'd just stop in my tracks. I'm like, oh, I, I, I never even heard of this. Oh, I, I recognize this actor. Oh, that looks like it's interesting. And yeah, but yeah, I am very human. And I think we all have a collective story where, it comes down to, is there a good monster or some good violence? Is there a little nudity or is there some sexual situations? Do I recognize any of the names? Uh, usually that's just all I all I needed. You know, if the plot sounded interesting, that was cool too. Um, but as a teen, those were just sort of the basic uh, crucial ingredients required for me. It, was, it wasn't until later that I would be a little pickier about the plot. <laughs> that made sense or if it was unique or original. But I think all these movies at at that time kind of felt like they were probably the same. So it was really just like, if you're in the mood for a horror movie, does this tick all the boxes? So that'll that'll be an enjoyable experience. And very rarely was there like good critical praise for some of these movies as well. Like uh, throughout both your documentaries, you have um, the um, Cisco and Ebert show and little snippets there of (laughs) their kind of like their uh, takes on a lot of these movies, um, which, you know, to be fair, a lot of the times are spot on, but it it does come down to really, you know, know, just taste and and what you're into. And um, clearly... I think, you know, a lot of us horror fans um, weren't really going by the word of what um, Siskel and Eber were saying at the time or the equivalent well, in, in Australia, for I, example. I was actually very, you know, I think a lot of people who might not have been around during that 
time. Siskel and Ebert were were the gods of cinema in terms of their thumbs up and thumbs down. Hmm. And people, took, they, they had an incredible amount of influence. And uh, whether or not you paid attention to that was was uh, a different story. But I, I was like, wow, they didn't like it. It must really suck. But I think, I think when it came to horror movies, I quickly sort of, I, I, I understood that they did not, they, 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 they were a bit above it, you know, they were, yep. they, they, and, and so I, I took that with a grain of salt if they didn't like it. And, and that was part of the appeal of including them in In Search of Darkness Part One and Part Two strategically. Because, um, you know, oftentimes they just didn't like it and they sort of took the moral high road. Yep. Uh, and that to me is quaint and amusing now because I think we all love this, whether, whether we care what they say or not. But sometimes when they disagreed, that was even more entertaining. I just love in, the, in Part One when... Uh, uh, they're talking about it, and, and Ebert calls the thing the barf bag movie of the summer. Hmm. And then you know, cut to uh, Siskel's you know, reaction, like what? <laughs> it was it was a good movie. Um, but you know, on the flip side, Ebert also talked about um, Motel Hell and how that movie is either you know uh, 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 he called it uh, what was what was the word? He, he connected it with Texas Chainsaw massacre as 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 schlock essentially mm. but he also thought because of the way that it was put together it could potentially be a genius film and that's the word he used so uh you know then there was an interesting take on it back then i you know having watched both documentaries now and you know we've we've gone through the past year of the whole kind of covid experience and how that's changed the way we've watched movies um i over the last year, if I was going to put a percentage on how many horror movie screeners I had sent my way, um, mm-hmm. I would say sixty-five to seventy percent of them were horror films, oh, and, and not I, and not on the basis as well in that I review horror movies. I think that above any other genre, the horror genre is the most adaptable when it comes to new technologies. Um, you know, circumstances like we lived in the last year. The mm-hmm. horror film always breaks through, always finds Absolutely. a way around. Um, and I think above anything else, what the, your two documentaries have shown is that with the VHS generation especially, regardless of censorship tactics with the whole video nasty things in the UK, regardless mm-hmm. of what critical claim might come, it always finds its audience. Do you agree in regards to the adaptability of horror as being the most accessible um, in no matter the circumstances placed in its way? Yeah, I absolutely do agree. And, you know, it, it, it's a lot of filmmakers get their start doing horror and then yeah. they kind of graduate to more, quote unquote, prestigious, you know, genres in filmmaking. But, you know, you look at, you know, like Cronenberg and, you know, Sam Raimi, uh, they cut their teeth early on with that kind of stuff. Um, it's horror is 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 kind of a tried and true method to make your money back because you don't have to spend too much money yep. on a high concept idea where again we talked about all the boxes that you tick you know you, ingre- you include the necessary ingredients and people will respond to it because i think they don't hold such a high bar for of expectation for what a horror movie can be 
Um, maybe audiences are a little savvier and a little different and a little, uh, they require more from a brand new film, but uh, horror is also delivering. Uh, and I think more money gets to go to horror now because it has all over these many decades now proven to be uh, a, a, a financial turnaround that's that's usually successful. So yeah, you look, and especially you talk about this last year, I, I think of course of host uh, on Shutter, you know, that's an hour long and it's it's scary as hell. And it takes advantage of the zeitgeist of what we're all experiencing and turns it into, you know, a found footage horror movie. Um, it, you can be as imaginative as you want. The rules are different for horror uh, when it comes to, you know, sex, violence, nudity, gore, all that kind of stuff. And then high concept. You can do more with unless uh, a uh, smaller budget, you know, more with less, arguably. Yeah. And so I think it's tried and true. And people, the people who want to produce that know that. And uh, while nothing is guaranteed, uh, the success rate is much higher. Um, now that you have um, made your way out of that unmarked bunker, uh, part two <laughs> is out. Um, it went in forever out there, 80shorror.com uh, to, to purchase in, um, um, in Search of Darkness Part 2. Um, what's next for you? Is In Search uh, for Tomorrow still something that's on the cards? Is that the next thing uh, that you're working on? Yeah, I'm actively actively shooting as we speak. Um not like this very moment, but uh, uh, this past weekend, I, I sat down with Sarah Douglas of, uh, uh, you know, Ursa from Superman 1 and 2, and mm -hmm. not to mention Solar Babies and Return of Swamp Thing and Conan the Destroyer. I, I also sat down with Lance Guest, star of The Last Starfighter. Um, I'm getting actively lots of interviews despite COVID We're we're making it work while, and we're doing it safely. Um, and the idea is to, uh, the aim is to deliver this at the end of the year, uh, similar in structure and scope as in search of darkness, part one and two, it's going to be the same thing. It's going to be a decade of, uh, sci-fi films and, and the many sub genres within sci-fi, all eighties movies. So before In Search for Tomorrow hits um, our screens, everyone, please check out In Search of Darkness Part 2. Go to 80shorrordoc.com. Put in your order now for, like, in these Blu-rays are very limited uh, edition, aren't they? I mean, this isn't something you're going to have on sale for forever. This is five days from now, done, and that's it. And it's very true uh, because we we manufacture this, you know, we're an indie company, Creator VC, uh, Robin Block's Creator VC is an indie company that we manufacture pretty much in batches. And so we make it available and then that's it because uh, it costs money to do limited runs. So you yep. got to sort of do a run and then that's that. Um, and um, going back to In Search of Tomorrow, uh, if you go to 80s sci-fi doc, so 80s sci-fi, S-C-I-F-I doc, D-O-C, <laughs> dot com, uh, you can follow our socials as well um, and just find out what we're doing with that film. Um, but yeah, the socials for 80s sci-fi doc and 80s horror doc. Um, yeah, it's a limited time with this flash sale. Uh, it's really 
a good deal, especially if you like, like you were saying, you know, you like holding a physical copy in your hand. Uh, it gives you more than just a four and a half hour movie. There's much more that comes with it. Uh, and uh, it, it was very much a limited uh, experience in terms of, uh, you know, after February 14th, don't say, oh, you know, I should have gotten it because it is going to be very hard to find. And you'll find the track record of the first one is very much the same way. Well, David Weiner, I absolutely love the In Search of Darkness movies. Congratulations to you for parts one and now part two as well. Um, just absolutely fantastic work. You can just see the hard work on the screen there. And um, again, congratulations to you. And hopefully when In Search of Tomorrow um, comes out, we can talk again about that one. I'd be happy to, and I, I appreciate your appreciation. Thanks so much for your interest, Matt.